I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, my parents gardened a little bit. Um, my dad worked for the railroad, and so we would, you know, it, I remember at 741 Atherton in, in Mays, Kansas, this house that we lived in, it was the biggest yard that we'd had to date, and my dad tilled up this huge section of the yard, and we did tiered gardening inside of, we used railroad ties to make the boxes, and, you know, we could get, we could get basically brand new railroad ties for free, you know, because my dad knew where they weren't being used anymore, you know, in all those places, and so that's what happens when you work for the railroad, I guess, one of the benefits, right? Um, man, I hate those railroad ties. <laughs> that was a whole lot like work. But um, anyway, we, we grew up gardening, and and my dad, he grew up gardening as well. And I never really knew much about it, about the gardening, why my dad was making the choices he was making, all those things. I mean, he would say it, and you know, but I never understood all the intricacies of it until I really got to talking to my grandmother. And uh, my dad would take tomato plants, and we would plant the tomato plants. And uh, I know, like, it's really popular. A lot of people take newspaper and will put around all their tomato plants and everything to keep the weeds down. I don't know if you know this or not, but carrots will do the same thing. If you plant carrots up underneath of your tomatoes, it keeps all of the weeds out. The carrots put in something into the ground that the tomatoes will make them flourish, and the tomatoes put something into the ground that will make the carrots flourish, and it's kind of like this symbiotic gardening relationship. And so my dad would do this, and my dad wanted to make sure the seeds got underneath there well, and so my dad would take, basically, he would pull dirt back and everything, and he would just scatter carrot seeds and then drag dirt back up over the top of it. And my grandma Breedlove had a conniption fit when she heard about this. She was like, oh, son, you can't do that. And my dad's like, mom, it's fine. And my grandmother was not having it. I mean, when I was out and when my grandmother lived over in Silva, Missouri, I remember going and looking at their garden and every carrot that they would plant... They would poke one hole in the ground. And you guys, I don't know if you know how small a carrot seed is. It's pretty stinking small. Okay. Poke one hole, one carrot seed, push the dirt over. One hole, one carrot seed, push the dirt over. Now, why did my grandma do this? And yet my dad would take a handful of seeds and just kind of scatter them out and drag the dirt over the top of it. I mean, this is, they're doing this at the same time. This is in the 80s and 90s. It's about money. My grandma's like, you cannot waste those seeds like that. And my dad's like, Mom, I paid like $2 total for every carrot seed that I got. It's not a big deal. And my grandmother was freaking out on him every time she would hear about him do this. Or doing this. Sometimes I need English lessons. But um, anyhow, my grandmother got her ideas about gardening and everything because she lived through the Great Depression. She lived through the Great Depression and every single seed needed to grow. They could not afford to have a seed not make it. It would mean the difference between going hungry or not. 
And we were living in a time, and I don't know, many of you probably remember the 80s and 90s. We were living in a time in our country of pretty good prosperity. Reaganomics apparently worked, I don't know, and all this stuff. And so we're living in a time of pretty good prosperity. Things are happening well. And my dad is, is, is like, you know, I've got the money. It's not a big deal. I can throw these seeds out there. It doesn't matter if half of them die. I just don't have to pluck weeds that way. And my grandma wasn't having it. Right? She wasn't having it because she's like, we're wasting these things. And she lived through a time where that waste would have been seen as an enormous tragedy. J.K. Galbraith wrote in the 1950s while reflecting on the Great Depression that the best way to keep the financial world on an even keel is to listen to the people who were around when the previous crash occurred. In fact, he suggests that financial crashes happen precisely because the people who remember the last one have either died or retired and thus are no longer around with their memories and character formed by that previous experience to warn people to not be irresponsible. What Galbraith and my grandma were getting at is that we need to learn from those who have gone before. My grandmother wanted my dad to learn from somebody who had been through those hard times, who had gone through those things, who had, who had seen when every little carrot seed counted. What Galbraith is writing about here is he's saying that we need to learn from those who have gone before us. That, we, that you know, the scriptures tell us in some places that there are nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. You think about this. Now, I'm not talking the financial crisis of 2008 happened because of carrot seeds, okay? So, but think about the financial crisis of 2008. A lot of what happened is because people like my grandmother and those who had lived through it began to die off. They went past retirement age and started passing away. And we were failing to remember and learn from the past mistakes. Many scholars and business professionals have written about startling similarities between the Great Depression that happened in the early 1900s and the Great Recession that started in in the 2000s. Startling similarities. Now, I'm not going to go into them all here because I'm not the, the business insider, but you can go look at old articles from Forbes magazine and all these things. Very similar things happening that were leading up and, and were part of these same things. They were causing all of this. The basic point that Galbraith was trying to make, that my grandmother was trying to make, and that I'm trying to make now, is that we failed to keep in mind the lessons learned from the Great Depression. And this is probably due in large part to what Galbraith suggests, that people have died off and they're no longer in those fields and everything. We have repeated the past mistakes. Now I have a thing I like to say. A smart person will learn from his or her own mistakes. A wise person will learn from yours. And that's really what Galbraith is saying here. Is that we failed to keep in mind in 2008 those things from the past and so we repeated some of those same mistakes. The principle... 
i.e. learning from and effectually remembering the Great Depression would have assisted us in avoiding the Great Recession. That's the principle, right? So remembering the past would have helped us to avoid this current thing that started. Is exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at as, uh, as this author transitions from the warnings in chapter 10 to the Faith Hall of Fame in chapter 11. We need to remember the faith and they learn from the examples of the heroes of the faith who went on before us. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at here. Now, I started, I know I started off talking about financial stuff because that's one of the things that I think's happened in the recent past where we haven't really learned those lessons like we need to from the past and we've repeated them. But the author of Hebrews here is getting ready to transition from all of these stern warnings, all of these things into the Faith Hall of Fame. And I think a lot of times we might overlook what the Faith Hall of Fame is all about. So let's look at our scriptures for today. Just, just a few verses. Hebrews 10, 37 through 39. Three simple, simple verses. Starting in verse 37, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from a different translation and that's okay. Here's what the scriptures say. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have been of those who have faith and preserve their souls this is a book into the faith hall of fame this is the start of the faith hall of fame i'm going to do something that i didn't plan on doing you don't have to turn there i'm going to jump to hebrews 12:1 i'm just going to read that to you real quick and then we're going to go and have prayer therefore Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews is saying, we need to learn from those who have gone before us. What they have to say is hugely important. The lives that they lived are hugely important. And church, I'm going to do something a little crazy this morning. If you are 60 years old or up, would you please stand up? If you're 60 or above, would you please stand up? I know the women right now want to smack me. (laughs) All right? Now, if you are under 60, I want you to look around at these people. This isn't just the Faith Hall of Fame that you need to be doing this with. It's these people who are standing inside of this room. That's why I'm so big on intergenerational ministry and us saying that we need to learn from these saints who have walked this out. They've been there. Don't be smart like they were and learn from their own mistakes. Be wise and you learn from theirs. You may sit. That's why I'm so big on this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. We ask you that you would speak in a powerful and a mighty way through your Holy Spirit. And that everything that is done in this place today will glorify and honor you. Lord, may you use this time to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us, so that we would look 
to those who've gone before us and not shrink back. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen. I'm not going to teach today, which is what I do on most Sundays. My goal is not to teach you anything today. My goal today, which is very rare for me on a Sunday morning, is to preach. And they are different. Teaching, we're covering new things. Preaching, I want to encourage you about the things that I think that you already know. The things that if you are born again, that you got this explained to you at the time that you came into the Christian faith. I want to this morning encourage you, exhort you, and maybe, maybe, and it might happen to some of you, you might get your toes stepped on, but that's not my goal here. Okay? But it's to preach, to encourage you to run that race with endurance, to run that race that is marked out before us with endurance, that we need to learn from the heroes of the past. We need to learn from the heroes of the faith. Their example is there in Scripture for us to learn from. Sometimes those lessons that we learn from them are good, and sometimes those lessons that we learn from them are bad. We learn sometimes how not to do it. And at other times we learn how to do it. Everything inside of Scripture is not something that you should go and do. There are plenty of things inside of Scriptures that you should not go and do. Can I get a witness? I mean, the story about David and Bathsheba was not an encouragement for you to go spy out your neighbor's wife from the rooftop. Amen? There's places in there we're not supposed to do what they did. But church, all Scripture is God-breathed. That's what the New Testament tells us. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for training in righteousness and correction and reproof and rebuke and all of these things and exhortation. All Scripture is God-breathed. We are all facing different things going on in our lives right now. Some of the things that this week happening to our families, we're in, some of us are being crushed. Some of the things that are happening aren't necessarily our families. They're our jobs. They're these other things. All of us are being crushed and attacked in, in different ways. Church, I'm here to tell you, pick this thing up and ask Jesus to give you a rhema word for today. Say, God, I love you. God, I believe you. Hey, I may be mad. I may be frustrated right now. I may be confused. But I still believe you. I'm not going to shrink away. I'm not going to run from your word. I'm not going to run from your family. I'm not going to run from your spirit. One of my wife's favorite psalms says that if I ascend to the highest heavens, you are there. And if I ascend to the very depths of Sheol, you are there. Heaven or hell, you're there. You know what the old timers used to say? H-E double hockey sticks or high water. Church, get in your word. You know this is right. 
If you are born again, I know that right now inside of you, the Holy Spirit is testifying that what I'm saying is correct, that you need to be in His Word. His life-giving Word. Many of us are feeling defeated. Many of us are feeling crushed. Many of us are feeling beat down. And I believe that it is because we're not in His Word. We're not in His Word and therefore we're not learning. And, 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 and what goes on inside of us is that we think that something magical happens when we get saved. But friends, I'm here to tell you nothing magical happens in this sense. The men and women in chapter 11 did not simply wake up one morning with a supersized faith. They worked to develop this aspect of their character. I am going to preach a sermon on everybody in there. In the Faith Hall of Fame. It's going to probably take us 20 sermons. I don't know how many people there are. It's probably going to take us 20 sermons just to get through chapter 11. Gideon is one of the people mentioned in chapter 11 in the Faith Hall of Fame as an example of how to live out the faith. Not as a negative example. This is a guy who was being crushed. He was the youngest son of the least significant family in the least tribe of all of Israel. And God said, I want to do some great things through you. I want to deliver the people through you. I want to do all of these things through you. God shows up on the front end. When Gideon is afraid, he is, and I'm not going to preach the whole Gideon sermon this morning, okay? But I just want you to get a little bit of what's going on here. Gideon is inside the wine press threshing out grain. Now, friends, back in the old days, nowadays we thresh it out with a combine, okay? The combine takes care of all the dirty work. Back in the old days, you had to thresh out the grain out of the head by hand. And so they would usually go up on top of the hilltop and they would thresh it out and then they would kind of toss everything up in the air, let the wind blow the chaff away and the grain would fall back down to the ground. Gideon is in the wine press, surrounded by walls on all sides that are up past him. He's throwing this stuff up in the air and all the chaff and everything is coming back down on top of him because he is afraid. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says these words, Mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, what? I'm sorry, what? Who are you talking to? And God does some amazing things. And you think that Gideon would get this figured out when he has this victory of faith, but it doesn't happen. Gideon's having all these victories, all these things are happening, and, and, and Gideon goes and he, he picks this army that the Lord tells him to pick, and then Gideon is still afraid to go confront him, and he says, I'm going to give him into your hand. He knows it's God speaking, and yet he's not real sure that he's hearing what God's saying right, and he's afraid still. And God said, look, take Pura and go down and listen at the camp. Take your brother. Uh, I'm not talking about his biological brother. I'm talking about his brother in the faith. Take your brother and go down and listen. If you're too afraid, go down and listen and hear what they're saying. Gideon didn't just wake up one morning with a supersized faith. David... King David, who the Scriptures tell us was a man after God's own heart, he didn't just wake up one morning with a supersized faith. 
His dad wouldn't even take him to the show to walk in front of Samuel. Because his dad was just so sure it wasn't David that God was calling to be king. I mean, Saul, King Saul was a big man. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was everything that they were looking for outwardly from physical appearance. And David was a shepherd. Now, you got to understand something in Israel, friends. Shepherds couldn't even testify in court. They were considered almost to the bottom of the barrel. Testimony was unreliable from them. This is who God raises up to be their king. Did David have a supersized faith because of all this? No. No, because when Saul came after him, he ran. When his own son rebelled against him, he ran. He worked out his faith, though, over many years. He pressed into God. What about Moses? I, see, I think a lot of our, our modern movies about the Ten Commandments, about the exodus from, from Egypt, I think it's done a real severe injustice to what the Scriptures teach us, friends. Moses told God no. When Moses, when the burning bush appeared to Moses and, and God, and when God appeared to him in a burning bush and said to go and do this, Moses said, I can't. And God said, I'm going to be with you. And Moses said, I've got a speech impediment. We always see these movies painting out where Moses is standing up there doing all this talking. Friends, that's not what the scriptures say. God says, I'll let Aaron do the talking for you. You tell Aaron what to say, Aaron will say it to Pharaoh. The whole song says, Moses said to Pharaoh, Oh, Pharaoh, let my people go. No, he didn't. No, he was speaking to him through his brother. And eventually, Moses got to the point where he would talk. He did not just wake up one day with a supersized faith. He got up one day and he tried something big and he, inter- and, and, he, and he intervened for somebody who was beaten on one, of his, on, on one of the Israelites and he kills the Egyptian and they don't react well to it. And he runs away and spends 40 years in the wilderness. He didn't just wake up one morning with a supersized faith. He worked this thing out with fear and trembling. I could go on. I could talk about Abraham not waking up with a supersized faith. Abraham didn't believe that he was going to get a son. He didn't believe that the son was going to come to pass the way that God said the son was going to come to pass. His wife didn't believe it. His wife said, take my handmaiden. I'm giving you permission to sleep with my handmaiden and conceive a son by her. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And that's where Ishmael came from. And in, and in turn, the entire nation of Islam, they trace their roots back to Ishmael. And they say that Ishmael was the son of promise, not Isaac. That Isaac was the illegitimate son.
Maybe some of you just got a little bit of a lesson on Islam today. But that's the reality. A good Muslim will tell you that. When I say good Muslim, I mean a Muslim who is faithful to the Muslim faith will tell you that. See, Abraham didn't wake up with this supersized faith. We take these little snapshots from Abraham's life and we look at them and we, we tend to look over his struggles and gloss those over and just go right for, the, right for the places where he had victory punches that he delivered. But this is a guy who struggled. We think about this whole thing, you know, where when the, when the angels come and they say that a year from now she's going to have a baby and Sarah laughs. This wasn't like, a hee, 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 that's so neat. This is like that whole when somebody tells you something and you think they're full of hooey and you laugh at them like, oh, whatever. That's what it means. She laughed. This laugh of disbelief. She didn't wake up with a supersized faith. And here's what I want to tell you today. I think that a lot of us think that we're not doing well. We're not doing good. That things are going so horribly wrong because we don't have some kind of supersized faith. If you don't have a supersized faith yet, you are in good company with the Faith Hall of Fame. They didn't just wake up and have it one day, friends. They didn't just wake up one day and everything was horrible and the next day it was all great. It didn't work that way. You're in good company and you need to realize that today you need to come back to the place these are things that you know and i know you know them but i need to preach them to you today to encourage you that you are not alone inside of this struggle that you are facing you are not alone in all of this They worked this out. N.T. Wright says that virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. Not first nature, as though they happen naturally, but rather a kind of second order level of naturalness. Like, I don't know, an acquired taste, such choices and actions, which started off being practiced with difficulty, ended up being yes. Second nature. Their faith was kind of like this black cup of coffee. I don't know very many people, if any, who the first time they picked up a cup of coffee that was black went, Mmm, that's good. Mmm, woo, I'm so glad that I drank that. It was an acquired taste, right? It was an acquired taste, and some of you heathens haven't acquired it yet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't acquire it. It leaves more for me. But, uh, but you know, this is the faith. It, it's an acquired thing. I mean, yes, we have faith to save. Faith like a mustard seed. We have this initial faith that takes root inside of us and grows and becomes like the largest of all garden plants that, that the birds of the air nest in it and people take shade underneath of it. It starts off this tiny thing and through trials and tribulations and turmoil and strife, this thing takes root and it grows and it becomes something massive. It does not happen overnight. 
And many of us are on the verge of quitting because we think, what's wrong with me? Why is my faith not bringing me through? It is. The road's just hard. We sang a song this morning. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. As we wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise. Faith will well up inside of us. These men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 didn't just wake up one morning and have supersized faith. It didn't happen magically. We must work to develop the virtue of Christian faith. But why? Friends, here's why. Here's something that I want to preach to you and hopefully change uh, your way of thinking for a time, for the time being, hopefully for the rest of your life, but I'll probably have to come back and encourage you about this again. Listen to me. The goal of the Christian faith is not to get into heaven. Half of you I might have just checked out and been like, my pastor just went to heresy. Listen to me. Follow me. Before you accuse me of being a heretic, follow me for a second. The goal of the Christian faith is not simply to get into heaven. If it was, Jesus would have taken us to heaven with him as soon as we believed. The goal of the Christian life is to begin practicing now how to live out the values of God's kingdom as we wait for God to restore the heavens and the earth. I have read the end of the book and it does not end in heaven. The end of the book does not end in heaven. Friends, it ends with a new Jerusalem being lowered down to a new earth. And this original plan that God had to make an earth and populate it with people who love Him coming to pass. It is not, the goal is not to get to heaven. Heaven, my friends, is a temporary stop along the way in God's ultimate plan to finish what He started. His goal isn't to get us into heaven. His goal is to get us into His kingdom here on this earth. Why else would the New Testament, especially Hebrews 11, be so full of exhortations to live out the faith as we wait for the reappearing of Jesus Christ? If the goal was heaven and we're all going to heaven because we're born again, then why are we being told to live out our faith? Why are we told to work out our faith with fear and trembling? Why are we told to do all of these things? It's a stopping point. Heaven is a stopping point along the way to a restored heaven and earth. The Father, through the sacrifice of the Son, has begun the restoration of all things, starting with the crown of creation, you and I, mankind. But the Scriptures tell us, Paul writes in one place, that the entire creation groans with expectation and for the revealing of the sons of God. But here's what it says in Revelation chapter 21, second to the last chapter in the book. And when I mean in the book, I mean in the whole doggone thing. And the last one as well. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Oh, church, and you got to get this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Wait a minute, that's just like the Garden of Eden. God came down in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day and walked with man and woman. And He's coming down to do it again. Praise God. We talk about our works. We talk about all of these things. It's because we're practicing for what it's going to be like on this restored heaven and earth. I'm not done with the passage though. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God just like it was before the fall. He's putting it back. He's got a plan. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. Church, all this garbage that is happening in your life that is crushing you, that you don't think you can take another step inside of it, it's going to be no more. I'm reading you the end of the book. We win. I've told you this before as a church. I've told OCCA this as a church. We win. We win. And we have to keep our eyes set on that. That's why we do not grow weary with well-doing, but we pursue Jesus Christ all the more as we see the day approaching. In the end, we win. Somebody say we win. Who wins? When do we win? In the end? Do we win in the end? Somebody say, we win. We win in the end. Church, don't grow weary. It's easy to grow weary. It's easy to give up. God knows there are days when I want to give up. There are days when Sarah wants to give up. There are days when John wants to give up and Laura wants to give up and Polly wants to give up and the Gamellos want to give up. There are days... When people who are good people who love Jesus with everything they have want to give up, but we win in the end. The goal is not to get to heaven. It is to develop the kind of life and character that is expected of us in the kingdom of God. To develop virtue. I said earlier, virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. Now I want to tell you something else here. The dynamic of virtue in this sense, practicing the habits of heart and life that point toward the true goal of human existence, lies at the heart of the challenge of the Christian behavior as set out in the New Testament itself. This is what it means to develop character. This is what we need and what the Christian faith offers. For the time, whether short 
or long. Right there, if you want to read it. That's okay. If you want to get around to it, I'm done with the thing. I'll have you touch it here in just a minute. Guys, our faith is pressing onward and upward towards the prize, but the prize is not heaven. Heaven is a stopping point along the way. The prize is a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell among us and we will be his people. And praise God, I won't be fat anymore or ugly. And whatever limp you're walking with, you won't walk with it anymore. And whatever pain and sorrow that you're feeling, whatever's going on inside of your family, all of those things that are going on, you won't have it. And that is what Hebrews chapter 11 is about, my friends. It is transitioning from the warning to now it's transitioning to say, now walk it out as these people have walked it out. And I want you to remember, over the coming months, as we go through Hebrews 11, that I'm not expecting you to wake up one day and have a supersized faith like these people. Remember that I told you on the front end, they did not wake up one morning with a supersized faith. Their faith grew as they practiced the faith. I look back at things that I did 10 years ago, 12 years ago in the ministry, and I wish to God that He would ask me to do those things now because they would be easy. But I have noticed as I have walked this faith thing out that it never seems to get any easier. But as I look back, the things that I've come through, I could do those with ease. He keeps taking me on. I'm not saying I have supersized faith yet. I think I'm medium. I started off as a mustard seed, got to a thimble, and now I'm to a medium-sized cup of coffee. But baby, I'm going for grande. We have to practice this. We have to encourage one another. We're getting ready to enter into the Christmas season. We've already entered into the Christmas season. And this is a time of year that is tough. I think it's a time of year that is tougher for more families than it's not tougher for. People not seeing people they love and all of the things. seems like every hurt and everything gets magnified at Christmas. Because the people that you want to be with aren't there. But church, we don't shrink back from the faith. We press on. Now, I didn't teach you anything today, I don't believe. I don't believe that I taught you anything at all. Can I have this back now? I don't think I taught you anything. So therefore, my homework this week has nothing to do with trying to prove to you out of the scriptures that what I said is true. Instead, I want you to read the Faith Hall of Fame. Monday, Hebrews 11, 1 through 7. Tuesday, Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. Wednesday, Hebrews 11, 17 through 22. Thursday, Hebrews 11, 23 through 31. Friday, Hebrews 11, 32 through 40. And then I want to cap it off with what I started the sermon with, the other book into this. And since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set before us. 
church, I know you know this in your heart. I know that you know that these people did not wake up one morning with a supersized faith and went out there. I believe that there is a group of people out here who has read these Old Testament stories, who have had them taught to them in Sunday school, who have had them taught to them by their parents and their grandparents. You've heard all of these stories. You've heard about these people's trials. You've heard about their struggles. But what the enemy has done has tried to help you to forget that they had trials and struggles and only let you focus on those wonderful things of faith that they did. And then you feel like a loser. But you have to understand, the men and women listed in this Faith Hall of Fame, they're men and women broken, just like us. I said two weeks ago at the, at the community service that I am a simple, broken man. And I meant that. These folks that you're going to read about were simple, broken people. Don't grow weary. Let us pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that everything that happens will be done for your glory and for your honor. May our strength rise as we wait upon you. Lord, may people today walk away encouraged that they don't have to have a supersized faith today, but that it's okay to have that mustard seed that's growing. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to learn from those who've gone before. It's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen.